how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode is brought to you by IronJohnGear.com. In between your creative pursuits, make sure to check out Iron John Gear for top apparel, footwear, fitness items, outdoor supplies, sports gear, and much more. Visit the website for top deals on things like lanterns, backpacks, tents, snow clothing, bomber hats, sunglasses, fishing gear, and more. Visit ironjohngear.com today and save money on your next adventure. In addition to Iron John Gear, make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. Making the transition from a prose writer and journalist, Sam Shaw has shifted into becoming an expert in suburban deception, metaphorical slang, and the relevant period piece. As somewhat of a combination of Dr. Strangelove and Mad Men, Sam Shaw's Manhattan is masterfully written both in structure and character. The WGN show lives as a drama based on the lives of the world's smartest scientists as they calculate the possibilities of the first atomic bomb. Set in Los Alamos, New Mexico, the show is mainly fictional but based in great detail on real events and individuals in 1940s America. Sam Shaw's Manhattan has since come to an end since the recording of this interview, but the creator is now working on a show called Castle Rock. Castle Rock is based on the stories of Stephen King. The series will intertwine characters and themes in the fictional town of Castle Rock. For most of my life, I thought I was going to be a prose writer. Um, I wrote fiction uh, kind of all throughout adolescence and high school and college. I wrote a novel as my college thesis and then went to graduate school and got an MFA in fiction writing and um, uh, at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Uh, and I, I was totally convinced that um, I was going to spend the next 60 years of my life, uh, you know, surrounded by books and uh, writing prose sentences. And, um, and then along the way, uh, a friend of mine who uh, uh, was also a uh, fiction writer, he'd written this kind of astronomically successful uh, first novel or co-written it with a friend. Uh, his name's Dusty Thomas in a book called The Rule of Four. Uh, he somehow migrated out to L.A. and started working in television and um, managed to get a show on the air on ABC, uh, this um, kind of short-lived uh, cop show called The Evidence. And uh, Dusty called me up and invited me to do some work on the show. Um, at the, that point, in my life, I didn't even own a TV. 
I mean, I, I'd been a, a like a TV fanatic and I'd always been a movie fanatic, but I've been particularly a TV fanatic as a kid. But, you know, I, I, um, I uh, had to go on kind of a crash course to kind of get reacquainted with the conventions of the hour drama, which had changed a lot since the last time I'd been a regular TV viewer. Uh, and I, I, I loved working on it. Um, the thing that I loved best was uh, that it was fundamentally a collaborative medium. Um, you know, uh, I had this um, kind of amazing experience in grad school uh, studying fiction writing, um, which uh, uh, was amazing mostly because uh, it was a really social experience. It was like being kind of stranded on a desert island with a bunch of friends who were interested in doing the same uh, thing that I was interested in doing. And, you know, we'd stay up until 4 a.m. in bars and double-wide double, double wide trailers drinking, you know, canned macro brew beer and arguing about similes. And uh, uh, But then what you discover is the life of fiction writer is actually a really solitary one. Um, so it was such a great pleasure to, to um, be involved in a kind of creative enterprise uh, that um, wasn't so totally isolating. Wow, really cool. Um, I just finished the pilot of Manhattan this morning. It's really an intense show, a lot of uh, moving parts. Where did the idea come from, and what kind of research involved in a, in a timepiece like that? Well, uh, it, it started as a very, very different animal um, than the show that it became uh, about six or seven years ago, um, I had this idea for a, what I thought was going to be a feature um, that I wanted to write uh, involving the war on terror and um, what the burdens of secrecy are that are borne by people who are involved in um, work uh, uh, that, uh, um, that uh, uh, involves matters of national security. Uh, my dad uh, is a criminal defense lawyer, uh, and when he retired about uh, 10 or 15 years ago, um, he took on some pro bono clients to sort of keep uh, his mind active. And a handful of them were uh, they were detainees at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, uh, and I was so fascinated by the experience that he had uh, as this uh, you know attorney in his 60s representing these Yemeni guys and traveling to Cuba and traveling to the Middle East, um, I was mostly fascinated because there was so much he couldn't tell me about the work that he was doing. And that just suggested a story to me about what uh, um, what the costs are of secrecy, both at a national level and then at home, when you're sitting across the dining room table from your family and you can't share um, this experience that you're having. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, along the way, as I was sort of thinking about and researching um, matters of national security and this kind of huge um, military industrial secrecy complex that we've adapted over the past 70 years, um, it became clearer and clearer to me that the story of the birth of the atomic bomb was kind of the great origin story of 21st century America. It was not only the moment when uh, we developed the ability to essentially wipe all human life off the face of the earth. It was also the moment when we became uh, a, a country of secrets in a in a new and um, fundamentally different way, and um, we're still living in that country 70 years later. So that was sort of the genesis of the idea of the project. And then in terms of the research, 
Um, there's an incredible historical record associated with the Manhattan Project. Um, I mean, it's a, you could spend a lifetime um, just reading oral histories and memoirs and books of letters, and um, the, the record is just extraordinarily rich. I did some work as a journalist earlier in my career, and, and um, you know, I love the aspect of being a journalist and, and frankly, the aspect of writing fiction and writing dramatically for TV and film as well, the aspect of being a student. You know, you sort of get to airdrop into some world that you don't know a lot about and um, and you have to acclimate quickly and you get to sort of immerse yourself in its details. Um, and that's what I did it, over a course of basically five years. I read essentially everything I could about the Manhattan Project and talked to um, all the historians and scientists that I could. And, um, uh, you know, it, it was sort of my uh, crash course in um, a subject matter that uh, that uh, I, I knew almost nothing about as a, a guy who's very emphatically not a physicist and not a historian either. Um, what were some of the cinematic influences involved in your writing process for the show? Well, we knew, um, I knew very quickly and, and, um, and happily, uh, um, my partner in crime, Tommy Shlomi, who's the executive producer and director of our show, uh, who, you know, is best known for directing the West Wing. Um, he and I shared this sense about the feeling of the show that we were going to make and the look of the show that we were going to make, which is that we didn't want it to look and feel like a typical World War II story. Um, you know, there are, um, I mean, some of our greatest uh, uh, films and TV series, too, are set in the 1940s. And, um, you know, I, look, I, I um, am an extraordinary fan of a lot of those movies, and you know, I love Band of Brothers. But that sort of wasn't what we were setting out to make. Part of it was that um, the history of the development of the bomb is so much uh, weirder and crazier and so much harder to fathom um, than I think most people who have a casual familiar, familiarity with the subject matter realize. I mean, it truly is right. like this true life science fiction story. You know, what happens when you take um, the greatest collection of geniuses ever assembled, probably since, you know, classical antiquity, and you stick them in this essentially a makeshift prisoner of war camp, you know, this sort of um, city that's built overnight in the middle of uh, the desert southwest on top of a dead volcano, and you cast them with building the most devastating weapon humankind has ever imagined, this weapon that's either going to end the war and possibly rid the uh, world of war forever, you know, or potentially could destroy human life forever. Um, You know, it's such a... um, it's it is such a far fetched premise, you know. I mean, it it belongs like in an Isaac Asimov novel or something, um, and it felt really important to capture that strangeness. You know, it's also a story fundamentally about paranoia and secrets. Um, what it is to live in a city whose very existence is a secret and whose purpose is secret. Um, the vast majority of people who lived at Los Alamos during World War II had no idea what the purpose was of this town that they lived in. You know, I mean, there were physicists, but of course they brought their families and their wives and kids. And when you have kids, you need uh, schools. And when you have schools, you need teachers and you need grocery stores so that people can eat. You need contractors to build the houses. And, 
none of those people were privy to the secret of what the town was. Um, and that suggested such a kind of climate of paranoia. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of the sort of American literature of the, of, of the suburbs, you know, from Updike and John Cheever up through um, David Lynch and Blue Velvet and, uh, and Desperate Housewives, you know, this, this sort of whole narrative of um, dark secrets behind picket fences. Uh, and um, this, in a way, was sort of the mother of all of those stories. This is the first uh, modern planned community. Uh, Los Alamos became the prototype for Levittown in the suburban boom of the 1950s. Uh, and so the idea that the sort of the first proto-suburb was a place whose picket fences held the greatest secret of all time, which is the secret that we were developing this weapon that would change forever our relationship to our own mortality in the world. Um, that seemed really, really exciting. And it also suggested a mode of storytelling. You know, so we sort of talked about this show as, as almost a true life uh, Twilight Zone episode, um, uh, which has been sort of part of the fabric of the way that I write it and the way that Tommy shoots it from the beginning. Within all that research and, and collaboration, um, when it gets down to you in the room, what are some of your writing rituals? Uh, well, you know, um, I, I think for one thing, uh, I remain a huge researcher. You know, uh, I spent years researching as I was writing the first drafts of this show, but I still, I, you know, I, um, my office was looks a little bit like, uh, you know, somebody from one of those uh, reality hoarder shows ought to come in and, you know, restrain me and clean it out. It's just overflowing with books and papers and research at all times. And in a way, I think that research can be a, you know, a, a, a way of procrastinating or a defense against the blank page. But, um, but I really have to sort of think my way into whatever I'm going to sit down and write. And so, uh, so usually there's a lot of reading and pacing and walking uh, I take a lot of baths and showers, and then uh, uh, finally, uh, when I uh, realize that I have a loaded gun to my head because we're up against the deadline, um, I dive in, and then I usually uh, will write a first draft as quickly as I can, and then um, and then kind of mercilessly comb through it and uh, try to rehabilitate it. Uh, but uh, it's not, you know, I, I, I always envy writers who talk about the process of writing as if um, it's this sort of mystical, um, uh, you know, person-to-person uh, -person phone call from uh, some muse who dictates dialogue over the phone. That's not the case right. for me. It's always um, a really long and slow and painstaking ascent. Okay. I usually get that answer more than you'd think. Um, <laughs> what's the most Well, that's the illusion, right? I mean, there's a yeah. very romantic idea that, that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that writers possess some kind of special genius and um, uh, it, it, I know a lot of really, really fantastic writers, and, and the thing that uh, most of them possess is the ability uh, uh, not to um, kill themselves every time they read their first drafts. <laughs> Amidst all that, what's the most difficult step in the writing process for you? The most difficult step of the writing process? Um, well, you know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, when you're writing for TV, um, uh, for the most part, you're uh, you're not working in a vacuum. You're working with other writers, uh, as I do. Uh, you know, I have a staff of writers, a room I've put together. It's actually a pretty unusual staff in that um, 
nearly all of the writers on our show are uh, reformed fiction writers, lapsed fiction writers who are now writing for TV. Um, a bunch of them are old friends and colleagues of mine from Iowa. Um, uh, and and um, that's a, it's a really mysterious process writing with an, a, a group of people and finding consensus and, you know, almost a sort of Socratic process of hoping that you put a bunch of um, smart people together in a room with different points of view and different life experiences, and we sort of debate and um, arrive, you hope, at an idea that's better than any individual idea that any individual member of that group could have come up with. Um, but uh, but it is, um, you know, it, it, it's tricky because at some point someone needs to be an arbiter uh, and needs to legislate a point of view about what the um, what the way forward is going to be, and and so um, in a way that that's the the um, the sort of uh, the most um, challenging part uh, is that uh, you know in a world in which it's sort of there's this choose your own adventure experience where you um, you are aware that there are are 50 ways of telling a story, you know ultimately um, you have to commit to one and settle down and um, and uh, and uh, and and choose, and so you know that in a way I think is um, is the greatest challenge of of writing for television. Okay. Um, in your opinion, what makes a good story? Um, well, I, I, honestly, I think it's a good character. Um, the the uh, look, we we um, we have some pretty uh, intricately constructed um, plots in our show. Um, and more so as the seasons progress, you know, uh, this is almost a kind of, um, I was a, uh, a, a jazz musician for a lot of years. I actually thought that, um, I had the folly to think that I was going to be a professional jazz guitar player, which is so completely nuts. Probably the, the, the only, uh, field in which you're less likely to be able to pay your rent than, uh, as a writer. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I, I have a sort of musical approach to thinking about, uh, about, the writing of our show and the construction of our season's storytelling, um, where you sort of change the tempo and where themes develop over time. Um, and so we were really careful and thoughtful about the way we approach those plots and those stories, but ultimately none of them mean anything if they aren't um, built to service the character that the audience can identify with and care about in some way. Um, you know, it, the sort of fundamental mission of our show from the beginning was to take uh, subject matter that may feel um, really distant and really foreign to a contemporary audience. You know, what was it like to live in 1943, 1944? What was it like um, uh, to uh, live in a pre-internet America where there was really um, kind of unequivocal national support for this um, righteous mission overseas? Uh, uh, you know, it was almost a sort of um, pre-lapsarian uh, American moment, a more kind of innocent America, and um, uh, but but to to try to construct characters who feel contemporary enough and who feel fresh enough and um, recognizably human enough um, that we uh, you know have a a way into a world that in some ways is um, very different from the world that we're living in right now, uh, and so um, so that's the case for me. It's sort of like uh, you can. Um, construct the most airtight, uh, rock-solid, three-act structure um, ever conceived, 
And uh, if there isn't a beating heart at the center of it, um, you know, at least I, as the viewer, am not going to be engaged. You've had a lot of different, like, seems like career paths. It seems like you shifted the right way and brought everything together in, in, in a show like this. Um, what advice do you have for young writers, um, pros or television or otherwise? Uh, let's see. And I've, there's sort of two pieces of advice, neither of which are my own. You know, okay. these are like, uh, I think as a writer, it's sort of like you um, you carry along these bits of wisdom that um, – speak to you in some way uh, and you pass them along to other people. So you become sort of the custodian of these little fortune cookies of writerly wisdom. Um, and, uh, this, you know, the first of these I think is, uh, I think I've, I've heard this one um, ascribed to E.L. Bostero. I'm not, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it's essentially this, this is a, something that was said to me about uh, writing a novel, but I think it's really true about any piece of writing, which is, uh, uh, you know, that, that, uh, writing a long project is like driving home at night. You know, you can only see as far as the reach of your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. Um, and right. that's really, a, to me, that sort of exemplifies what the experience is of writing anything, by the way, writing a scene, writing an act uh, of an episode of TV, the whole episode, writing a season. Um, you know, if you uh, 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 have the folly to focus on the whole all the time, you'll lose your mind because it's impossible. It's impossible to write a season of television. You know? But if you make the ascent one line at a time, one scene at a time, um, uh, uh, you know, if you drive as far as the uh, reach of your headlights, you can make the whole trip. And so that's one. The other thing, which is just it's honestly the best piece of advice that I've ever heard, and I, 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 I'm certainly not the originator of this, and uh, I, but I can't remember where I read it, um, but it really spoke to me, was the idea that, the most important moment um, in your development as a writer is the moment when you stop thinking about creative writing um, as a kind of high art all the time, and you start thinking about it as work. Um, it took me a long time to do that, you know, especially as a prose writer. I became a prose writer and became interested in writing prose because I loved prose stylists. You know, I loved a beautiful painterly sentence. I loved Nabokov, and I loved Don DeLillo, and um, and Lori Moore, uh, uh, and uh, so I spent a lot of time sort of um, with uh, these sort of highfalutin ideas about myself as an artist, joining this pantheon of prose writing artists, um, and in a way, I think the, the writers I know who have managed to make a life as writers are the ones who set aside some of those ideas and just um, focused on the work at hand and wrote every day. So what can you tell us about the upcoming season or some other projects you're working on? Anything you want to tell the anything else you want to tell the readers about the the show or anything else you've got going on? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we we have this our second season is about to um to premiere. We premiere uh actually a week from today uh mm -hmm. on WGN America and um I'm incredibly excited about it. And part of it is uh our show deals with physics and physicists, which may sound dry, but, it, you know, I think really it's it's a thriller in its way. But the first season of our show took this um, kind of diverse ensemble cast of characters and threw them together in this desert island world of Los Alamos to build this weapon. But the weapon that they were building and the war that uh, they were trying to end um, was still kind of an abstraction for them. You know, they were writing equations on blackboards, um, and the war was sort of this distant rumor overseas. This is a season of storytelling where um, it was important to us 
that every character in his or her own way um, be confronted with the reality of this job that they're doing, which is um, it's not a science project. They're building a weapon of mass destruction. You know, they sort of, there's a moment for each of these characters where they cease to become a scientist uh, or a spouse of a scientist, and they become combatants in one way or another. Um, so that was it was uh, really exciting for us to to um, to try to build a season uh, that uh, that makes the realities of war and the violence that's at the heart of this project um, uh, present and real and dramatic for the characters in our story, um, uh, even while the war is raging, you know, thousands of miles away on another continent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and we, um, you, this can be off the record if you need it to do. We started with a certain date in the first scene of the first episode. Is there a certain, you know, uh, you know, seasonal plan for how many seasons the show will last leading up to Hiroshima? Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah. Um, uh, I, when I, uh, sold this show to WGN America, um, I sat down in a room and, and walked, uh, Matt Turnus, the, head of the network through uh, seven stories, uh, seven seasons of, of uh, Manhattan story, what, what this show um, would look like over its entire life cycle. Now, of course, you know, anybody who uh, works on any creative project realizes um, what insane hubris that is because right. projects um, change and evolve as you write them, or at least they should, particularly in television where um, you cast actors and they begin to teach you who the characters are and, you build sets, and those sets suggest new scenes and that kind of thing. But um, the trick up the sleeve of this show for me has always been that it presents itself in the early going as a, a story about World War II. But I, I actually don't see it as a story about World War II at all. It's really a, a show about um, what we became after World War II, about the moment where we opened this Pandora's box, this atomic Pandora's box, Um uh, and entered the Cold War and uh, the moment when America became a superpower and wielded a completely different kind of uh, force and influence around the world for good and for ill. Um, so the truth is the moment when those bombs dropped in Japan uh, is really the end of the first act of this story, as I've always thought about it and, and, um, and structured it. Um, uh, and if anything, the second and third acts, um, the moment when uh, this tiny town in the desert goes from being the uh, best kept secret in the world to being the most famous city on the planet. Um, that, that's sort of the place where I think the story um, uh, really gets activated and becomes um, uh, most exciting. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter. We also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online, which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook, How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.